Hello, spacers. Welcome to Starlight, a space opera. I'm Isaac, your host and GM for the adventures ahead. This show, whether you're watching or listening, is a labor of love, and one that we want to make the best for you. So if you can, take a moment to freely subscribe or share however is most comfortable for you. Thanks. Now let's plot a course to Starlight. Here we go. Roll for ignition. Look, Nyla, he has your father's eyes. Oh, he's so beautiful. Ten toes, ten fingers. Ooh. And the start of his first beard. Warrior's promise if I ever saw one. <laughs> he's so sure to make us proud. Wait, 14 pounds and 8 ounces, 16 inches tall, and wonderful reflexes. Of course, he's perfect. Proud parents you must be. Let us check his starter reflex and draw a blood type. There, there. Perfect. Here, mother. Take him. I advise skin-to-skin -skin contact. As soon as this blood processing is done, I will help with the first latch. Nyla. Imagine. What if he carries the trait? Oh, now stop. It's a one in a billion chance. But just imagine the honor, the pride. Our son, possibly going to serve our Thane, playing a part in the prophecy. What it would- Trait, positive. <gasps> what? Repeat that, N.O.B. Repeat it now. This one is positive for the trait variant. A1 PXK. In summary, your son contains the rare mutation known only in dwarven kind. Your son has the potential to work with highly energetic substances, such as Iune stones, in large quantities without losing his faculties, but rather, according to the literature, will be cognitively enhanced by such proximity. Your son, if you allow it, can become an astral navigator? But Bristol. Are you sure? Are we sure? Nyla! How could we not? Our son is chosen by Mordane, the father Allhammer. Our child, serving the guild. Nay, he'll be serving Thane Axmane. He will help us not only recover our lost homeworld and the glories hidden there, but as the prophecy says, we will become enriched and the chosen ones for whom no world will be hidden. In the coming age, it'll be the dwarven people whom the universe will look to for its guidance. Nyla, what choice do we have? It is fate. 
then he will need a name. One worthy of a warrior and an astral navigator. Well, my surname, of course. He shall carry it as tradition. So what do you name him? Oedicus, for fortune. And Nero, for strength. Oedicus Nero Shatterarm. Yes. A great warrior and a great navigator you shall be. So you shall make all dwarves proud, but none more so than your papa and your ma. Shall I contact the guild then? As a warning, you will see your child only a few times a year. Though you will be well compensated and live the rest of your years gilded in gold. But there are still many who would choose their child over this. I, well... We would do this regardless of the compensation. What Oedicus will achieve for the greater good is enough to justify the means. And when all is said and done, we shall dine in Mordain's halls, knowing that we defeated the Dark Ones and rid them from our home world. If the galactic community won't help and will fall prey to those twisted treaties and lies, then sacrifices must be made for us to defeat them as dwarves, as warriors of our thane, as children of Father Allhammer. So it shall be. Hey guys, I hope that you enjoyed that lore section of dwarves coming to the guild. Uh, as you're going to see over the next couple weeks, that the guild's going to start playing a bit more into the story, so to speak. And depending on how the players want to engage with the guild, whether they, uh, whether Atlas feels like it has something to do with his past of how Atlas was torn apart on a battlefield and became the creature man that he is, I don't know how much the players are going to end up going down that line. So we're actually going to do a couple part series of lore on the guild. Uh, and so as you just listened to, you got to hear a little bit of why people, why dwarves might want to send some of their their children off to the guild, what importance it holds. Uh, and then we're going to get a little bit more into the astral navigator realm those who construct dragons, and then a little bit into the Thane himself. So I hope you guys uh, are ready to kind of lock in and learn a little bit more what than what we're going to probably get in the story. Um, and feel free to steal any of the ideas if you want. So with further ado, let's without anything further to do, why don't we go ahead and jump into today's episode? So you're probably wondering, hey, what the heck? Where is everyone else? Well, it's been rather busy, so I actually thought it would be nice to give the crew a little bit of a break and maybe try something different. So I really would love to hear what you guys think and what you have to say about this. If you like it, please go ahead and send us an email or you know maybe leave something in the reviews. Um, and maybe we'll do this a little bit more often, but what we're going to do today is I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the specific things that we do with the Starlight game um, and why we do them, how they work, and some other variants that 
people use um, or that maybe you might want to use or even that I've thought of. Now, there's probably, you're probably wondering like, well, why, you know, we have a good idea if we've made it this far to what, like what you use and what, and uh, maybe why you use it. But, you know, it'd be nice to kind of go over that. And then for anybody new, you know, or people who are familiar with role-playing games, maybe you're curious why it doesn't seem like our initiative is ever in the same order or um, why our combat is so deadly. So what we're going to actually look at today so you can be prepared for that is combat initiative, how it works in our game, um, and other things that we've done or that I've, I've DM'd, combat deadliness, and then experience. I think that this will go a long ways to make your experience listening uh, a little bit more enriched knowing what's happening on the mechanic side even if sometimes it doesn't quite make it into the audio um, so why don't we jump into combat initiative so like like I said you guys have probably noticed that we jump around sometimes it could be if we have a queue of Atlas mob of enemies one Ray Clive if Clive goes first, he might suddenly go last in the next round and why that is. Well, actually what we do is we, we as in I, I made the executive decision and for any of you Dungeons Masters listening out there, it's your game and yes, of course you want to talk with your players, but ultimately you get to have fun too. So it's your rules. So if you want to do like something zany and try it out, you get the right to do that. You're putting all the effort in. Um, and personally, what I do is a card initiative. And by that, what it means is I just got a bunch of like regular old, like what look like a little bit bigger than playing cards, but they're dry erase, wet erase. So you can write on it with, you know, a marker, whether, you know, who, who this is, if it's Ray or player one, player two, whatever, or, or you know, the goblin group one. Um, and then what we do is we shuffle those up and we draw to see who goes first. There's a little bit more nuanced with that, but first let me kind of tell you why. So when I envision combat happening, I imagine it being this chaotic, crazy ordeal. I mean, hey, even look at real life, right? Like most combats that are happening, especially without weapons, let's say, you think that it's this great, cool, like Bruce Lee fighting style thing. No, no, like 90% of them end up on the ground. Yeah, that's probably why you sh everyone should probably learn a little jujitsu in their life, but I digress. Um, and so I love that aspect of that chaos in theory in a game. I don't want to be in that chaos myself. Um, but yeah, so if you're ever watching, like, say, Lord of the Rings or something, you see all these things happening uh, at the same time at once. And so I really wanted to recreate that feeling. And the best way I felt I could get that was through doing a randomized card initiative. Now, little note, while uh, I do this, this is not my idea. This is um, actually, I, I believe it's stolen from a different system. I wanna say it's Savage Worlds. I'm not sure, I'll have to look it up and maybe put that down in the doobly-doo. But again, what you do, what we do, is we write down the names, we shuffle them up, and uh, what we do is we draw them. And what you draw first is who goes next. So how it usually happens is I'll draw two cards and I'll say, Atlas, you're on deck. I'll draw the next card and I'll let that person, or sorry, uh, <laughs> I got that backwards. What we'll do is we'll draw the first card and I'll say, Atlas, you're up. And then I'll draw the second card 
and let's say it's Clive, I'll say, Clive, you're on deck. The reason I do that is because, you know, you want combat to move quick, 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 especially the more players you have. Um, you don't want to waste time on turns if possible, because if you time, you know, a traditional style of D&D in combat, it could sometimes take up to 10 minutes for four players to go all the way around. So I let people know who's on deck, especially because we don't have a running initiative order, so people can't plan. And so they have a turn at least to figure out what's coming up. Now, we still use initiative, and here's how we do it. So we start off, we just pick one person at the table, and then we run clockwise from there each round. So what will happen is, is at the top of a round, after the cards are shuffled, before anything's drawn, I will say, Ray, you're up. From you, we'll move clockwise, but go ahead and roll initiative. And then Courtney will roll the dice. Uh, I think Ray might have like a plus four. And if she rolls any number that equals up to 20, so for in her case, she's a plus four, so 16. She rolls at least a 16 and gets then that plus to 20. It means that she gets to go first. Okay? And so that's pretty cool because then we also don't take her out of the initiative order. So that allows her to kind of get that feeling of like she got the first draw and that's that but there we do something else that's really fun so we add in the element of like danger with that initiative roll but also high reward so if you roll a nat one you fumbled the ball pretty bad and you actually get pulled out of the initiative order you get skipped that round so that's kind of the high danger you know you can kind of play that off however you want um but if you roll a nat 20 not only do you get to go first, but you can pick another player that you want at the table and they get to take their turn immediately after you. You both don't come out of, they both don't come out of the initiative order. And so effectively they get two turns in a round. And what's kind of cool is then they can kind of synergistically work because they know, okay, I'm going to go and you're going to go. And actually what we do is we allow them to run in any order. So um, that way they can be more synergistic where it's like, maybe one player wants to buff up this player or they want to do this thing that uh, sets up the other player to do something better. And so that's kind of, that's what we, that's why we do the card initiative is the group size is small enough to make it a really fun, effective system. Um, and it adds an element of chaos in danger. So I, I've done this with up to eight players before. I really think it starts to kind of fall off once you get past four um, but if people are on it and they're quick, again, there's a little bit of like experience with the gaming group, it works. But um, what I would actually recommend, what we've done before, is uh, side initiative. You know, once you side initiative for once you get bigger groups, usually more than four, I would say five, six, seven, eight side initiative works really well. And what you do is each round, turn at the top of or not each turn, but each round at the top of the round, uh, both sides pick one person to roll initiative for them. The only catch is if you pick that person, they can't roll initiative again until every other person's rolled initiative. So you can't just pick the person who has a plus seven initiative and keep rolling it. All right. So they roll in direct opposition with the enemies. And 
whoever rolls higher, that side gets to take their turn entirely first in any order that they want. Believe it or not, this actually makes combat go really, really quick. Um, and it's effective even in small groups, but it's really effective in big groups. If down the road, we bring back on quite a few guests, because I kind of like have this envisionment of if the players survive, if they go down a path that leads to fighting the big bad evil guy, it could be a crazy battle. And it might bring in multiple other guests that they've had before, and we might actually have a big party. And in that case, we would probably go to side initiative. Okay, so now this one is for this one is for all of you who are relatively new to D&D and is like, okay, all I've heard is your show. What is initiative? How does it work? Let me just go ahead and just tell you. So the reason why all of the two things that we do, they're variants, they're different, is because the way normal initiative works is it's a very static but predictable thing. Um, you basically, everyone rolls initiative at the beginning of the battle and they add their whatever their plus is on their initiative stat to whatever they roll in the die 20 and it goes highest to lowest. And that's the running order for the entire battle. So let's say if Ray rolled a 19 and Atlas rolled a 17, it would always be Ray's going first, Atlas is going second. And uh, for me, you know, that's that's just a little too rigid, a little too boring, but there's nothing wrong with it. It works completely well. Um, so why don't we go ahead and segue into combat deadliness? Combat deadliness. Yes, yes, I know there are some of you who have listened to the show and you're like, hey, dude, you almost kill your players in one hit. <laughs> okay, that's not true, but a lot of the hits do do usually like a quarter of their HP. Um, and usually, for people who, again, are new to D&D and are kind of listening to the show and to get an idea and also get some entertainment while doing so, there is something called a, uh, a CR chart or a CR rating that is basically, it's a challenge rating. And there's a correlative challenge rating equal to like the player's level. That whole thing is messed up. It, it works decently well at lower levels and it gets a little bit more like just gray zone as they get higher and higher level. What I have found, especially because I run a lot of open world games, is I just threw all that out the window. The challenge is gonna be whatever the challenge is. And part of the game and the challenge of, and the fun of it is the players figuring out, like having the ingenuity to figure out how to overcome an obstacle or even when to run. And so from the very get-go, I tend to make my, my combat very deadly in general. Um, I like a little bit of like, kind of like that grimmer feel, a little bit of more of that sword and sorcery feel. And it also, it really adds like this, extra layer of reality for the players where they start to realize like oh this is maybe like kind of an epic setting but we can still die and we can still die quickly i would say that the combat deadliness has been ratcheted up in this setting because it has a little bit more of a sci-fi futuristic fantasy feel so the moment you add in guns and lasers and i don't know eye beams <laughs> um the damage output is just so much higher. 
Now you flip down the other side and you probably notice that the players also do a lot more damage and that's because in our homebrewed setting, the weapons, depending on what they are, have a higher amount of damage. So it, it goes both ways. Now that's kind of just like from a setting perspective, uh, on a more nuts and bolts element, again, combat can just take forever. You know, what you guys hear in the episodes where combats are like 20 minutes at most usually, sometimes if it's a boss battle, I think maybe we stretch to 30, but that's like, I can only maybe think of one episode where we did that. And the actual amount of time we spent playing in combat, which was super fun for us, was probably more like two hours. Yeah, a hour plus combat usually shrinks down to with editing down to about 20 minutes. And that editing is usually just taking out silences and thoughts and making sure that things just flow quickly so that it's something appealing to listen to and you're not listening to like a lot of ums and ums and ums. But the reality is combat takes a long time. So on a mechanical standpoint, it keeps the story moving, it keeps it engaging for the players, keeps it fast paced, um, they get this epic feel and there's a couple ways that we actually achieve that and so part of that equation is the damage output of both the players and the creatures uh, another element are some of these variants that we use in the game so you're probably maybe you've been curious like well how is it they kill things in one hit well what I use is a Dungeons and Dragons 4e rule uh, and it's called minions and it's basically you as a game master kind of decide depending on where your player's level is what they've done what kind of things aren't really a challenge to them what kind of things are more like minions so for example if they're level one a orc might actually uh, might actually constitute a challenge if they were to brawl with them but when they're like level five or level six that level one orc is suddenly not a challenge so then you relegate them unless they're someone special to the role of a minion and minions always have one HP and that's not a whole lot of HP and yes they still have a armor class which is the number you have to roll to to in order to hit them so they can be hard to hit still but they're easy to take out and this is important because it keeps combat moving fast they get an epic feel we get epic cinematic uh, sound design when we do that but it keeps the, the feeling of getting stronger in the world real. And I think that that is something that's really awesome and fun for the players. Uh, on a more um, economy-based approach, Dungeons and Dragons combat is suffers from action economy. And, you know, those of you who have, who have played Dungeons and Dragons, you know this. Those of you who are a bit new, action economy is is how many like things you can do in a turn so oftentimes what people will find is they'll have a really strong bad guy or what they think is a really strong bad guy and that character that the dungeon dragon the, the <laughs> that character that the dungeon master is playing sorry excuse me about that i'm having all these slips but that character struggles because it only can take maybe two actions a turn and it's facing four players who can attack twice or do multiple things in a turn. And so it can only, it can barely do anything, you know, per turn. 
well, having these minions in allow other challenges that can be taken out really easily by the players, but can eat at their HP, can add to that that action economy on the on the bad guy's side. Now, there is like a rule variant. Uh, well, it's technically it's not a rule variant. I call it a rule variant. It's more of a homebrew, homebrew, and it's not really my idea. It's taken from Matt Colville, but I think I kind of stretch it to its limit at times, where sometimes you want to have a bad guy who is both deadly and is a challenge. Matter of fact, you probably want a lot of bad guys who are a challenge because it keeps the story interesting, and n more so with your boss monsters, your boss characters. And what I do is I use Matt Colville's um, monster-oriented actions a lot. And so basically I make an entire new sheet for the character, for this monster, and I give it the, just blanket. And I just say, okay, not only can this monster attack twice, but it has four different options for like a reaction it can take, you know, at the end of a at the end of another person's turn and it it might be as simple as the reaction is get over there is what it's called and it's so that way when i deliver it the goblin stands up he bares his chest after almost getting hit by atlas's burst axe flaring his nostrils he yells get over there and the actual effect of that is you would have all of your minions move their their movement speed and surround the entity or that person so you can you can do a lot you know when you you set things up and so i i use these action uh oriented monsters a lot to basically give my bad guy the equivalent of depending on how deadly i want to be two to four people's turns you know in a small window and the players love it because Especially if you set it up in a way where you are hinting at what could happen if you are like within this proximity or stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, if you like any of those things, I highly recommend trying them. If you're just listening to the game, you maybe now you kind of have an idea of why the combat is so, so dangerous and deadly. Um, a few ideas that I do want to toy around with, and maybe they'll show up later in the podcast, maybe in a different iteration once we finish this one, or maybe just in our homebrew games. But, you know, you, you guys try them out if you want. Tell me what you think, what you would tweak. Um, and But some of the things you can do if you want to, like, again, make it more of a problem-solving game at times or... You know, you really want to make combat deadly and make players think about their actions and care about their characters is I've heard of people doing HP caps at level three, level five. So the story still remains epic, but your character never moves beyond mortal means. Um, again, that kind of depends on like what kind of genre your players want to play. If they're like into grimdark, if they're into sword and sorcery, they're going to like that more. But if they're into epic fantasy, that might not work. But there are ways you can make epic fantasy more deadly. Um, usually the players that like epic fantasy like the big battles. They like to see their HP go up high. And what you can do is uh, you can toy around with, if it's a fantasy setting, the idea of a magic shield. Or if it's a sci-fi setting, the idea of a techno technological shield. 
and basically you have two different bars of HP. Let's say you, you cap your character's actual hit points at level three. And so that goes into one of the boxes. And then in the other one, um, you continue on from where they are. And that is, that is their magic shield or their technological shield by technological shield. I think like halo or something like that, where you get shot and it eats away at the shield before it gets to you. And so basically your magic shield or your tech shield eats the damage, you know, that's dealt to your character before it actually gets to their HP. But with the exception being that if a natural 20, so a critical hit is rolled against them, the damage goes past the magic shield and immediately hits the HP cap. So I don't know, I've never done this. This is just an idea I've had, but I imagine that it would kind of add a little bit of that danger while keeping some of that epic feel. So give it a try, tell me what you think. And uh, yes, I know there are some of you who are thinking there are better game systems than Dungeons and Dragons for that sort of feel. I agree with you 100%. But I also you know, wanna keep in mind that while I think that there are so many game systems that people should try like Ubiquity and other things like that, um, you know, this Dungeons and Dragons is the most, is the most well-known system and shoot, <laughs> I will play the same game over and over again. You know, I'll play Catan over and over again over a board game that might be similar simply because I know Catan's rules and I don't want to learn another game. And that's the truth for a lot of people. So try it. Let me know what you think. And who knows, maybe I'll, I'll try it at some point too. And the last thing that I wanted to kind of talk about was experience how experience works, what we're doing. Um, none of this is really unconventional except my last one. So how standard experience works is you kill a monster and it has, it has a little thing at the bottom of its chart where it says it's worth 300 points of experience or whatever that creature's worth. That 300 is then divided up amongst the players and they get that amount of experience. There's a chart where they have to hit X amount of experience, you know, and it gets progressively harder. Well, the way the experience system is written out is rather difficult to continue. Basically gets to a point where your characters have to be fighting all the time and it kind of takes away from the story, can take away from the story element of the game. Um, and you know, it just really, I've done it. It's, it's not quite, Quite my jam alone. If you're going to do standard experience, I really recommend getting experience that is divided by mon like small monsters, but then also having uh, bigger amounts of experience that when you kill a boss that you, they just get straight that. Uh, we also, what we do at Starlight is we do the milestone experience where basically after you complete a big mission or you hit a certain story marker, whether that's in a character's backstory or in the actual story going on that they're pursuing, they gain a level. Pretty simple. Um, and it can, what I like about it is it, it encourages the players to move the story along because rather than farming, what's called farming for experience by just killing monsters randomly, it makes players want to continue with the story. Now, 
There is one other type of experience that I would like to try, and it's it would be a combination of uh, standard and purchase. And purchase, if you never heard of it, is the original Dungeons and Dragons way of earning experience, where they would your character would go into a dungeon, you would find coins, and basically you would use the coins, the gold that you got, to buy experience points. I like the idea of that. I like it in the sense of you are going back to town uh, and you are paying a master to teach you the next amount uh, of experience or you're, you got these gems and you're using that to have someone sponsor you the next lessons. Um, I think that could be a really cool way to use money, especially because the money doesn't quite add up well in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I'm not an economist, so I don't know how to price things as you've probably noticed, but yeah. So those are the three things that I wanted to talk to you guys about, give you an idea of what we're doing in the game. So let me know what you think. If you like this, if you didn't like this and go ahead and if you don't mind, go ahead and leave a rating, a review. It helps people find the show, especially if you're a fan of it. Uh, I know that you want to share it and get it out there. We certainly do. We appreciate you guys. See you later, Spacers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Starlight. If you enjoyed this, please like, share, subscribe. For early releases, exclusive RPG content, and other bonus material, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com starlightadventures. And to reach us for questions to be aired, email us at thestarlightadventures at gmail.com. See you next Tuesday, spacers.